Well, let us remain standing in honor of God's Word, which tells us the good news of His Son, Jesus Christ. And I invite you to grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one of the blue Bibles and a chair in front of you and turn to page 855. If you weren't with us last week, uh, we began a series of sermons through Luke's Gospel by looking at the angel Gabriel's encounter with a man named Zechariah. And this morning we turn our attention to verses 26 through 38 to look at the angel Gabriel's encounter with a young girl named Mary. So let me go ahead and and read our text to get us started this morning. Then I will briefly pray for our study and then we will begin. So let us hear now, for God is speaking to us through his word. In the sixth month, The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The angel departed then from her. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together once again. Father, we thank you for your word. It's by your word that you created all things from nothing. It is by your word that you give life to our weary hearts. It is by your word that you awaken cold, dead souls unto the glory of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that this morning. Through your word that you would save sinners. Through your word that you would sanctify saints. Help me to preach as I ought. Boldly. Clearly. Unsure of a blessing to ever preach again as a dying man unto dying people. Lord, we pray these things so you would be glorified in our midst, that we would be edified through the Spirit. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was about ten years ago that something of a rock star evangelical pastor wrote a best-selling book that caused no small amount of disturbance in the American evangelical scene, in large part because he wondered aloud 
if the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is really all that important, he said in his book, what if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus had a real earthly biological father and his name happened to be Larry? And what if the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing the gospel writers threw in to appeal to the followers of pagan religious cults? He asked, would the whole thing actually fall apart? And he sure seemed to think not, as a few paragraphs later he says, if the whole thing fell apart, maybe it really isn't that strong, or it wasn't that strong to begin with. And so I wonder how you would answer his questions. How might you evaluate his views? Is the virgin birth really all that important? Is it essential to our faith? Or is it something that we can just do without and write off as mere myth from men of old? Well, Luke is going to answer those questions in our text this morning in Luke chapter 1. He's going to give us clarity on the importance that Jesus was indeed born from a virgin named Mary. So what he's going to do with his typical care, we talked about last week, he's very much an investigative journalist, a historian, giving unique attention to details. He's going to paint this picture of gospel theology through once again giving us a series of gospel promises spoken by the angel Gabriel. And so kids, I hope that you will listen carefully this morning because this text indeed contains some of the richest and most significant truths that we confess in our faith. And the subject of our text is God's sovereign word about the virgin birth of his son. Did you even notice as we read the passage just a minute ago how the text is pretty much entirely a dialogue? It's all words that come to us. There are no actions that are happening in our text. And so I want to, in some ways, even emphasize that as we walk through it together this morning under three simple headings. You might want to write these down. Number one, verse 26 through 30, we want to hear God's words of grace. Then verses 31 through 33, words of faithfulness. And then we'll see in verses 34 through 38, words of power. Words of grace, faithfulness, and power regarding the birth of the Son of God. So Luke, again, is going to set the scene, set the stage for what we are looking at as we hear his words of grace. Notice verse 26. He says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. So what that means is in Luke's chronology in this gospel, we are now six months on from what we looked at last week. Gabriel coming to Zechariah. We're three months away from John the Baptist being born. And if you notice verse 27, he tells us about the important character that that Gabriel is going to speak to. Verse 27 says, he came to speak to a virgin betrothed, to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Do you notice how in verse 27 he speaks of Mary's virginity twice, that she had never known a man intimately. So it must be important, important for what is about ready to come. That this is a a virgin that Gabriel is speaking to, but what's also important is that this is a virgin betrothed. 
At this time in, in the ancient Jewish world, marriage was essentially a two-step process, quite different from our own modern two-step process of engagement than marriage. Because what you would have is a young couple, the groom and the bride would be, be betrothed to one another. That would be the families agreeing about the marriage. Oftentimes, in certain segments of the culture, there would be some sort of bride price exchanged. And then the groom could legally call his betrothed, his wife. So, so significant was that betrothal. And then about a, a year later, the actual marriage ceremony would take place and it would be consummated. And according to the customs of the day, betrothal could happen as early as the age of 12. So you may not have realized this before, but most commentators and scholars would tell us Mary in this moment is as young as 12 years old and no older than 14 years old. So what we have Gabriel coming to is a young teenage virgin. And did you notice in verse 27, about to marry into the house of David, which is itself significant for what is about to follow. And so the angelic conversation begins, notice in verse 28, with Gabriel greeting Mary by saying, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Verse 28 she was greatly troubled. That's verse 29, I'm sorry. Troubled at the same. And trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Our, our two youngest children tend to take naps in the afternoon, normally from about 1 to, to 3.30, which means our, our three other children, especially when the months get cooler in the fall, they tend to use that time in what we call rest time which is not a whole lot of rest going on as they are often just outside the entire time playing in our backyard or our side yard or in the garage that opens into the side yard. And earlier this week I came home uh, one afternoon and as the garage door was opening I saw the little feet of my boys racing out of the garage into the side yard. And when my car pulled in, Haddon, our four-year-old, opened the door and he put his, his face to his hands and he said, Daddy, you frightened me when you opened the garage. How much more frightened must have Mary felt when Gabriel showed up? Because the word here for greatly troubled is something like perplexed through to the limit. And what's interesting is actually how it compares to the story we saw last week with Zechariah. You notice verse 12. Zechariah is said to be troubled at Gabriel's appearance. Whereas in our text, Mary is greatly troubled. Zechariah was troubled at Gabriel showing up, whereas Mary is greatly troubled at what Gabriel says, his greeting. And we might want to ask, why is Gabriel's greeting in our text so greatly troubling to Mary? There's a couple different options one of which might be simply put in the cultural terms of the day that Jewish customs said men never were to greet women at this time. So maybe it was just altogether surprising that this angel was greeting a young woman. Or maybe it's actually the exalted language of the greeting itself. You're the favored one. You have found favor with God and he is with you. Or maybe as we, Lord willing, will see next week, this young teenage girl had this rich understanding of Old Testament theology, rich understanding of Old Testament scriptures. So when she hears the angel announce, the Lord is with you, 
She begins to think through in her own mind all of those occasions in Old Testament redemptive history when an angel showed up or the Lord was announced to be with an individual. And often what happened is the Lord working some mighty act of deliverance through that individual. So she's greatly troubled. And notice how Gabriel begins to comfort her in verse 30. He says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. More literally, what he says there is, you have been graced by God. And parents and grandparents, even Sunday school teachers, I do hope that you are are doing the regular and intentional work of reminding your loved ones that this is how God's grace always works. Because she has found favor with God, not because of anything within her, some sort of personal worth or merit, but it's only God's good pleasure that allows his grace to fall upon Mary. And so these words of grace come to us. And have you ever even considered how like it was with Mary that God's grace might just come to you in the most startling of ways? In ways that don't appear to be altogether gracious when he speaks to you through his word and spirit. The words of grace, don't they now give way to words of faithfulness in verses 31 through 33? Because if you just scan your eyes through those verses, what you'll see is that Gabriel begins to give Mary a series of promises about this baby she is soon going to give birth to. And I count no less than seven different promises in these three verses. And first of all, he gives her promises about the baby's identity. Look at verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. What's fascinating to me is that Luke doesn't really give much attention in this Christmas story to the names that show up. He doesn't tell us the significance here, does he, of of Jesus' name in the way that Matthew does in chapter 1 that we read earlier this morning. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Uh, The name Jesus originally meant Lord help. It was this cry for deliverance is what it pictured. But over the course of redemptive history, it took on much more redemptive and significant connotations, eventually at this time in redemptive history, meaning Yahweh saves. So this is a promise about the one's identity to come, that he is the long-awaited Savior and Redeemer of God's people. Secondly, we get promises about his authority. Notice, Notice verse 32. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. So this is not just the long-expected Savior and Redeemer of God's people. This baby to come is the long-awaited Davidic king, fulfilling up all of God's covenant promises given to David all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which was almost a thousand years prior A millennium later, God is now finally bringing his promises, his covenant faithfulness to pass in this young child. And notice then also, verse 33, these promises about his eternality. For Gabriel says, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Which would have been in itself quite surprising to a Jewish mind in the first century. 
They were waiting for the Davidic king to come. The expectation was, however, that God was going to fulfill his long-awaited promises of the Davidic king to always sit on the throne through almost something like a, an endless succession of David's descendants. And here comes Gabriel is saying, there is one, one person to come, the son of the Most High, and he will reign on the throne of David forever. To him belongs the eternal reign in God's kingdom. So once again, Gabriel is preaching unto us the good news of Jesus Christ via promises. You know, we talked about this a little bit last week at the end of the sermon. The importance of God's promises for our life in Christ. You know, they are very much God's promises like an oasis in the desert that so often is the world in which we are living in. God gives them to us to feed upon them, to find fuel for our life in Christ through his promises. So I wonder if you sitting here this morning, struggling in sin, is there a promise in scripture that the Spirit wants to bring to your mind to encourage you to fight? If you're struggling in affliction or suffering, is there a promise in scripture that the Lord wants to give you this morning through his word and spirit to comfort you. Maybe you're even a member here at Redeemer Church. Is there someone in the congregation you know that is struggling, that is suffering, that is lowly, maybe even lonely? Could you encourage them this week with a promise from God's word that they might stand firm in Jesus Christ? You know, you could also do something, resolve in 2018. You could buy a book like this. Living by God's promises, grab a couple brothers and sisters in Christ, read through it together, discover what it looks like to live a life empowered by God's covenant promises given to his covenant people. Words of grace, Gabriel speaks. Words of faithfulness, he speaks. And now, of course, words of power. You may have seen in a kid's activity book, I've seen it even in a children's bulletin that we often put out on Lord's Day mornings. Kids, you might think about seeing two pictures put up for you to analyze. These two pictures look to be the exact same. And the exercise is to find five differences or ten differences between the two pictures. You know, at first it looks like they're quite similar, but the more you begin to look at the pictures, the more you realize, well, there actually are quite distinct differences between the two. And if you zoom out with me for just a second, From the verses that we've seen so far in Luke's gospel, you see these two scenes in which Gabriel is speaking about a baby's birth announcement. And they seem initially, don't they, quite similar. Gabriel's the same angel, speaking of a surprising birth of one to come who fulfills all kinds of Old Testament prophecies, but the more you begin to look at them, the more you realize, in fact, how different the scene we looked at last week is compared to this week. It's as though even Luke wants us to see right from the outset in his gospel that the coming of Jesus Christ is going to turn everything expected upside down. Because what does Gabriel do last week? He speaks to an old priest from a noble priestly family. Whereas this week... He speaks to a young teenage girl whose family isn't even worth mentioning in the text. Last week, he speaks to Zechariah in the epicenter of Old Testament religion, the temple in Jerusalem. 
This week he speaks to Mary in Nazareth, what one commentator calls far-flung nowheresville. And one of Jesus' earliest disciples' questions in the Gospel of John, has anything good ever come from Nazareth? John, we saw last week, is going to be great before the Lord. Our text says the one to come from Mary, Jesus, is the great one. Of course, we even saw last week that Elizabeth is going to conceive and give birth to a son. It's going to be a surprising pregnancy, but of course it does come through natural means. Whereas this week's announcement of a birth to come, the baby to come, will come through stunning, supernatural means, which highlights God's power in the gospel. Because notice how the words of power come to us initially in response to a question from Mary. Look at verse 34. She asks, how will this be? Since I am a virgin. If you read last week's text and were with us, you know that Zechariah asked something of a similar question when he heard Gabriel's initial announcement. He wanted a sign in order that he might believe that his old wife might have a child. And what does he get? A sign. And what is it? A sign of discipline. For nine months, God says, you're not going to be allowed to speak lest you spread words of unbelief. So here comes this young girl, Mary, asking a question. And do you wonder, is she going to get the rod of discipline too? And of course, we know, as we read the text earlier, she doesn't. And the reason why is, you may not have noticed before, her question actually comes with a tone of faith. If you look at verse 18, Zechariah essentially asks a question, how can this happen, Gabriel, that we who are advanced in years can have a child? Whereas in verse 34, Mary says, what? How will this happen? Signaling her faith. She believes it is going to happen. She assumes that she is going to have a child. She's just curious, like most teenagers. How is this going to happen? And so with kindness and dignity, notice how Gabriel answers that question in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. You know, that word overshadow is used in the Old Testament to talk about God's presence, overshadowing the tabernacle. It's used even in the Gospel accounts of God's glory overshadowing the mountain where Jesus was transfigured. And it even ought to, in our minds, begin to bring echoes back from the earliest of the Bible, whereas, or where when the Spirit hovered over the waters at the first creation. And now Gabriel is saying the Spirit is going to hover over this young girl and what's going to come, new creation through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And notice the result of this spiritual power on Mary. Look at the end of verse 35. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the virgin birth, according to Gabriel, is a, it's a big deal. Therefore, he will be called Holy, the Son of God. And I want you to see even what we would say in the fullness of Scripture, and theologically, is that the virgin birth of Jesus Christ protects and proclaims who we confess Jesus actually is. So even in church history, 
By the end of the second century, the early church fathers had recognized that the virgin birth of Jesus was essential to Orthodox Christianity and began to defend it with courage and with clarity. And all throughout the centuries, since Jesus even ascended into heaven, the church has had to fight this battle. Some of you know, almost 100 years ago, Presbyterianism in America fought a rich and often vehement battle over modernism versus fundamentalism. And a great warrior for truth named J. Gresham Machen wrote a book on the virgin birth of Christ. And in that book he said, deny or give up the story of the virgin birth. And inevitably you are led to evade either the high biblical doctrine of sin or else the full presentation of the supernatural person of our Lord. So students, think about this question. Why is it significant that Jesus was born of a virgin? Why might even we say it is essential to our faith that Christ was born of a virgin? Well, two simple theological answers I would give you. You might write these down and even meditate on them this coming week. First, the virgin birth demonstrates Jesus' full humanity and divinity. Because we confess even in the Westminster Shorter Catechism that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who was born of Mary, that he took unto himself flesh and so was and continues to be both God and man in one person and two distinct natures forever. So if he wasn't born of Mary, we would have reason to doubt his, his humanity. And if we had reason to doubt his humanity, we would have significant reason to doubt whether or not he could actually save human sinful people. Could he be a substitute for sinful men, women, and children? But the conception of power by the Holy Spirit also protects and proclaims his divinity, which is important for the second point. The virgin birth proclaims Jesus' sinlessness. Well, he wasn't born in the normal way. He didn't come from Adam's race in the same way that we all have. And so he hasn't inherited the curse and corruption that falls upon all humanity in Adam. And so what you need to see is the virgin birth protects the very gospel that we cherish. That Jesus Christ is the sinless substitute for sinners. And it's even shadowed, foreshadowed, in the text we find ourselves in this morning. So you might be in here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe you're even here this morning to seek out what is this Christmas story that so many people make a big deal about every single December. Well, what you need to know is that the Bible is very clear that we all in here this morning have been born in Adam, that we have inherited his curse and his corruption, that what we deserve is death's penalty and God's judgment being poured out upon us for all eternity, that there's nothing God knows we can do to remedy the problem of our sin. And the good news is that God decided from eternity past to send a remedy his son Jesus Christ, to be born of the Virgin Mary, to live a life of perfect obedience, being faithful everywhere you have fallen short. So he hangs on the cross as a perfect sinless substitute, a sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath. The atoning blood was shed to cover sinful men, women, and children. If you would but trust in him, and turn from your sin this morning, what you will find is God's love, not God's wrath falling upon you for all eternity. 
The Son of God took on the swaddling clothes of an infant so that by faith we might receive his royal robes of perfect righteousness. And will you not even receive them this morning? This one who came to save his people from their sins. So Mary didn't ask for a sign like Zechariah did. But you'll notice in verse 36 and 37, she gets one. Such is God's kindness. He says, your relative Elizabeth has conceived, and she's six months pregnant, she who was barren. And we even get the sense between the end of our passage in verse 38 and verse 39 that with haste, Mary rushes off to see Elizabeth. Maybe she really did need her faith confirmed. What's important, notice, is the end of verse 37, what Gabriel says as our scene concludes, for nothing will be impossible with God. Do you know a God of unimaginable grace and impossible power? Or do you know a God that only fits within the box that science says he can fit into? Or do you understand only a God that logic says he could possibly be? I wonder how the impossible power and unimaginable grace of God might even encourage you this morning. Where in your life does it feel as though God's kindness flooding into your home, even into your heart, seems so impossible, so unimaginable even? Well, take heart and be encouraged. The Son of God, eternal Son, came to be born of a virgin named Mary. Nothing is impossible with our God. It was in 1889 that the Eiffel Tower was built. And what you may not know is that the Eiffel Tower, when it was built, was the tallest structure in the world. It was over twice the height of the previous tallest structure in the world. It was built in time for the World's Fair, which came to Paris in 1889. And historians tell us that some 1.9 million people came to see the Eiffel Tower over the length of that exhibit. And supposedly, it's also still a great sight to see as it's the most visited paid monument in the entire world every single year. And what we come to in this passage in a way you might not have realized before, because this is the longest exposition we get of the virgin birth, is a monument of God's gospel truth unto us that does, doesn't it, still captivate countless people every single year in our Advent hymns, in our Advent season, in our Christmas sermons. And what I want to do as we begin to close is help us notice together at least two significant things about the Annunciation, as we have often called this passage in history. The first of which is that the Annunciation calls us to recognize God's sovereignty. To recognize God's sovereignty. Christ's coming to be born of the Virgin Mary not only turns everything upside down, but highlights for us God's initiative in man's salvation. That human wisdom, human schemes, human strategy could never suffice to save sinners like you and me. Human strength or human ability was never going to be able to bring anyone into God's kingdom. So what did our triune God do? From eternity past, the Father decreed to save a people by choosing them in Christ Jesus. 
who agreed to come and be born of the virgin and fulfill the law's demands and die in the place of sinners. And the Spirit agreed by power to work the conception of the Son in the virgin's womb and enable him to meet all of God's demands in the law and now apply salvation unto us. In a way that we need to realize freshly this morning is this Annunciation text shouts forth the entire sovereignty of God in our salvation. It's all of him, through and through, beginning, middle, and end. Eternity past, and praise God, into eternity future, it's all God's work on our behalf. Which leads to the second point. The Annunciation calls us to respond in humility. Notice verse 38 in Mary's response. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now, have you noticed the depth of Mary's courage, her humble bravery and humble faith in this moment? She has just been told that she is going to conceive. She is going to get pregnant in a way that no one's going to be able to describe or understand. Why we find in Matthew's gospel, what is Joseph trying to do? Figure out how he can divorce Mary quietly, lest she bear the immense shame that surely would have come from her neighbors, even friends and family members. At this time in the Jewish culture, adultery was still a capital crime. It wasn't practiced often. For all Mary knew, she was going to be dragged out to the street and stoned to death for this pregnancy. But in faith, she receives God's promises and says, let it be to me according to your word. And what a simple and basic and significant response it is. If God is sovereign, is there a more ordinary response in our life than humility? If we proclaim as we do as Redeemer Presbyterian Church that the gospel is one of God's initiative on our behalf, what ought to be the most ordinary, basic, spiritual fruit flowing through our midst? Increasingly, each and every year, humility before one another, before the God who has saved us. So he gives us this morning, doesn't he, words of grace, words of faithfulness, and words of power. Sovereign words that his son was going to be born of a virgin. And this is how salvation is going to come to sinners like you and me. Praise our triune God. Let us pray. Father, we do give you thanks for your grace, for your keeping your covenant promises, for your power in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would indeed encourage us this morning to see afresh your sovereign grace, your impossible power, Lord, we pray that you would comfort those in here who are weak and weary with these gospel promises, that we would be renewed afresh as we leave to, glory, to glorify Jesus Christ, to walk in humility before you, and to bear witness unto the good news that Christ came to save sinners. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen. Well, we do